Let's open our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, second half of Revelation chapter 19. The title of the message tonight, The Second Coming of Christ. Remember in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation, there's a description of seven churches. In chapters 4 through 18, the events of the tribulation are revealed, and now the theme changes to the second coming. Now, when we use the term second coming, I want to make sure that we understand that his return takes place in two events. There is the return for his saints, and there is the return with his saints. And what is covered in chapter 19 is that return with his saints. So the return for his saints is called the rapture. That takes place before the tribulation that we have just been through, at least our study has gone through, in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 18. In the rapture, he catches us up to be with him in heaven. In his return for the saints, we call that his return in glory. That is, every eye shall see him at that time. That takes place at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus returns, then his feet will touch the earth. Okay? In the rapture, he just comes and we're caught up to be with him. So the return in glory is what we're studying about here in Revelation 19. This is when he comes and every eye will see him. He comes to defeat his enemies and rule in righteousness. And that millennial rule, the thousand-year rule of Christ, is what's covered in Revelation chapter 20. Now, orthodox conservative interpreters of Scripture will see that this coming is a future literal event. If someone denies the second coming of Christ... He's denying a clear teaching of the doctrine, one of the major doctrines that's been revealed and accepted, believed and accepted, since the angels made the announcement when Jesus was taken up in Acts chapter 1. In verse 10, it says, While they steadfastly looked toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? And notice in the, in the next words here that the similarities will be of his second coming, his return, to his first going, okay? This same Jesus, same one, not another, which, ye, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come. That is, every eye saw him then, he just, they were looking up, he became a little speck, and they're still looking. He's going to come the same way, from heaven, from the clouds to earth. The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. There's another similarity. And then the word as, ye have seen him go into heaven. Now I might disagree with someone about the timing of all of the events and still consider him a brother in Christ, but he cannot deny the fact that this is a literal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. But I can have fellowship with someone who times things differently. When we get to heaven, I think we'll look back and, and either I'll say I was wrong, or we'll, he'll say he was wrong, or we'll both look at each other and say we were both wrong, but when we look at the scriptures then, we'll say it, ex it happened exactly as the Lord said it would. We just missed it. Okay. So we agree, we must agree, on the fundamental doctrine that Jesus is coming again. That is a cardinal doctrine of fellowship among believers. 
One thing seems clear to me is that the rapture of the church and the return of Christ are two distinctly separate events. Those who hold to a post-tribulation rapture, that is, after the, thousand, after the, the seven-year tribulation, generally argue that the rapture and the return happen at the same time. Now, there are passages in Scripture that talk about uh, the rapture. One of the key passages is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We've looked at that before. Let me just read that again. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that is, Christians who, have, who are, are now in the grave, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe, or since we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he adds, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And we can comfort one another. And that's a passage that we read many times at funerals. It is a comforting thing to know that we will be with him forever and ever. We'll be caught up together. And that word caught up is the Latin word rapere, which we get our word rapture from. Another passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. You get down to two verses toward the end of that chapter, 51 and 52. And Paul says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So... The rapture is described in other passages. But in Revelation 19, it's not there. Now listen to what uh, John Walvoord says in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Many of you have that commentary. It's a two-volume set, Old Testament and New Testament. And Walvoord himself was the author of the book of Revelation in that commentary. And as he deals with these two chapters, Revelation 19 and 20, John Walvoord writes, most significant is the fact that in Revelation 19 and 20, there is complete silence concerning the translation of living saints. In fact, the implication of the passage is that saints who are on earth when Christ returns will remain on earth to enter the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. So those believers who are, have survived the tribulation will enter that millennial kingdom just as they are living bodies. If the rapture were included in the second coming of Christ to the earth, one would expect to find reference to such a major event in Revelation 19, but no such reference is found. For these and many other reasons, chapter 19 is a confirmation of the teaching that the rapture of the church is a separate, earlier event, and that there is no translation of the living at the time of his second coming to earth, meaning this return uh, to earth. There's a handout that I've placed on the back table uh, in the lobby where John Walvoord lists 15 different reasons why the rapture and the return are two separate events. 
And you'll come, in, you'll come across people that will want to argue that the, the rapture and the return happen at the same time, the post-millennial uh, crowd. And so you'll, that's a great uh, a resource that you can have with you. Maybe tuck it in your Bible. Fifteen reasons why the rapture and the return are two separate events. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. And, and we saw in that section four alleluias, the only time alleluia is mentioned in the book of Revelation, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, tonight let's pick up on, on verse 11, the second coming of Christ. First we see in verses 11 through 13, John's description of the Lord as he comes. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful, and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. So here is a description of John seeing heaven open. That's not the first time that he sees heaven open. Remember back in chapter 4, after the seven churches, it says that John saw things that are, and he saw things that shall be. He was given a glimpse of the throne of God. Let me just read those two verses in Revelation 4. After this I looked. And behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. I like what John MacArthur has to compare that ver those two verses in chapter 4 with what we find in chapter 19. He says, Unlike chapter 4, verse 1, Heaven opens this time not to let John in, but to let Jesus out. The time has come at last for the full, glorious revelation of the sovereign Lord. Well, John sees the Lord riding on a white horse. Now, there's another who rode a white horse as we've gone through the book of Revelation. It was back in chapter 6 and verse 2. That was the world ruler, the Antichrist. One who attempts to look like Jesus, but he's a deceiver. Kenneth Wiest, Wiest Word Studies, he's famous for, writes, The 70th week of Daniel begins with the rider on the white horse, Antichrist, of chapter 6, verse 2, and closes with the rider on the white horse of chapter 19, verse 11, who's Jesus Christ. Now here in Revelation 19.11, the one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True. We saw this same title for Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now always in scripture when you come across an identification or a, we we call it a name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's more than just an identification or a label. It tells us something of his character. What does it say here in these words, faithful and true? That Jesus is faithful. That means he is absolutely trustworthy. He is dependable. You will never be disappointed by Jesus Christ because he is the faithful. He is also called the true. 
That means he is absolutely truthful. God is unable to lie. I heard a message one time on things that God cannot do, and one of them, he'll never be able to lie. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In Titus 1, 2, we read, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. His promise of eternal life will be fulfilled. He does two things in righteousness. Since he's faithful and true, he must punish sin. And so we read that he judges and he makes war. Now his grace is available. But then, on that day, because... Man has rejected God's grace. He will face God's judgment. He's described also as the Lord. His eyes were as a flame of fire. He sees everything there is to see. He knows everything there is to know. His eyes burn right through man's conscience and sees our heart, and he judges accordingly. On his head are many crowns. Now again, the description of the Antichrist back in Revelation 6, 2 said that he also wore a crown. But that was a Stephanos. That was a crown that was given as a reward or stolen in, in his case. But the many crowns that Jesus wears are diadems, different Greek word. They are royal crowns that belong only to a king. And in that imagery of him wearing these crowns, he has the authority, the right to rule. Dr. Stuart Custer points out that the many crowns tells us he has the right to rule all nations. He also describes those crowns to be linen bands. So they're not crowns as we would think of that are stacked on, uh, on top of each other. But they're these bands that are wound together as a turban on the head. His name was known only to himself. We have many names, again, that God has revealed to us so that we can know his character, more about him. But here, there's a name that no one else knows but he himself. And some people try to tell you what that name is. We don't know. But what it tells me is there's more to know that has not been revealed yet. <laughs> He's clothed with a robe. Dipped in blood. The blood is not his own that was shed on the cross. Here the blood is the blood of his enemies. We look back at Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 63. Let me just read the first four verses there. Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This, is the, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. His name here is described by John as the Word of God. The Apostle John is the only one who, who uses that term personally for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also in 1 John 2, 14, and now in Revelation uh, 1, 2, and, and in this passage as well. Let's look now at John's description of the armies of the Lord in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. The armies which are in heaven are following Christ as he appears on this white horse. Some say this army is made up of angels. I agree, but not just the angels. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Okay, This is the glorious appearing, that second coming of the return of Christ to earth, not the rapture. And all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And that will introduce the millennial kingdom. But the saints also will be returning with him. We will be a part of these armies that are returning with Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Jude 14 and 15, and Enoch also, the seventh of Adam, from Adam, prophesied the, these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now these saints are already in heaven. They've already been there with Christ. They're clothed in fine, white, clean linen. Stuart Custer writes, The white lined or linen is the clothing of the bride, pure and spotless, verses 7 and 8, in contrast with the gaudy splendor of the apostate church, Revelation 17, verse 4. Remember there, the woman was arrayed in purple and in scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. What a joy to think about what we'll be wearing on that day. Clothed in simple but entire purity and holiness. White. It speaks of the righteousness. And that's what we'll be wearing when we ride. They're also riding on white horses. Some say those aren't real horses. I don't see why they can't be. Remember our rule of interpretation, when plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Okay, that's a sensible definition, isn't it, of translation work. You might think, well, I don't know if I want to ride a horse. I had a bad experience when I was young. Maybe one bucked me off. Uh, maybe I can't ride. Maybe I, I just don't think I can stay on. You will then. <laughs> and believe me, you will be glad that you are there. You won't have to engage the enemy. God will slay his enemies with the sword of his mouth. You'll want to be there to see this. Isaiah 63, that passage that we read, said, I have trodden the winepress alone. It's God who takes vengeance on sinners. We're just there with him. The victory that will, uh, that will be won is Christ's. Notice in verses 15 and 16 now. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, 
And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a sharp sword that smites the nations. This is not the Roman gladius, which the Roman soldiers carried, an 18 to 24 inch sword that was in a scabbard by their side. This is not the Macaria, the knife that Peter pulled out and tried to use in the garden there when the soldiers showed up and he missed and cut off Malchus's ear. This is the Ramphaya, a saber, a long, broad cutlass. And notice, it comes out of Christ's mouth. The one who spoke the worlds into existence by the word of his mouth is certainly able to destroy all the armies of the Antichrist with a word. Millions will be killed in an instant. In the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther, the third stanza says, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Then Luther goes on to identify the word with a small w in, in that third stanza with a capital W in the fourth stanza. That word, okay, one little word shall fell him, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. And so that word is speaking of Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4, he prophesies, with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. What a powerful God we have. A word, and his enemies are destroyed. He'll rule with a rod of iron. There's a reference to the thousand-year rule of Christ on earth, known as the millennium, which we'll, be read, we'll read about in, in Revelation chapter 20. Psalm 2 is a millennial psalm. In verse 6, it says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, speaking of Christ's rule in righteousness for that thousand years. Verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And then in verse 9, Thou shalt dash them in pieces with the rod of iron. Walverd says the rod of iron represents unyielding, absolute government, under which men are required to conform to the righteous standards of God. And that's what will happen in the millennium. We'll read about that again next time when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But the only way that a person will be killed in the, in the millennium will be outward rebellion against God. There will be many that uh, inwardly are rebelling, but outwardly they're conforming to the, to the rule of the king, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the end of the thousand years when Satan is let loose, he'll deceive many, and that will prove that they were never really submitting their hearts to Christ. This picture here, the imagery, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Treading grapes to make wine is an image that everyone in the Holy Land in the Bible times would understand. Here, it's used to refer to crushing the enemies of Christ under his feet. 
Walvoord shows other scriptures referring to this winepress of God's wrath, Revelation 14, 19 and 20, Isaiah 63, 1 to 6. And then he says all these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment, it is too late for men to experience the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by his attribute of love. God is loving, but God is just. And we'll see his justice at the end of the world. His name is displayed on vesture and thigh that is a banner that drapes from his shoulder to his thigh. And on that banner, the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He'll rule alone over all other kings, over all other lords. Last, in verses 17 through 21, we see John's vision of a battle, and it's the Battle of Armageddon. The announcement to come to gather for the battle is made by an angel in verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. This angel is described as standing in the sun. It could be that he's standing in the sunlight or in the sun itself. Guster says, an angel is a spiritual being and cannot be harmed by being in or near the sun. This angel calls all the birds to gather for a supper. Now the word for supper is the main meal of the day. I know in the South, there's, a, there's always, I was always confused when someone invited me over for dinner. Because here in Michigan, we, we used to always have breakfast, dinner, and supper. There they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But this, this word for supper is the main meal of the day. It's the same word that's used for the marriage supper of the lamb. But this meal is quite different. Here the vultures are called to the flesh of the dead who are killed in battle. That's their meal. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, the flesh of all, both free and bond, both small and great. Note also the prophecy of Ezekiel about Gog and Magog comes at the end of the millennium. We read in the New Bible Commentary, that's a commentary where D.A. Carson and three other men are editors. They write, the angels summons to the birds of prey to gather together for the great supper of God is drawn from Ezekiel's vision of the overthrow of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. Though the assault of Gog and Magog is set by John at the close of the earthly kingdom, so that's at the end of the thousand years, in harmony with Ezekiel's vision. The enemies of God are gathered together, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army, that is against Christ. John already referred to this battle of Armageddon back in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Remember the angel thrust in his sickle 
and gathered the clusters of grapes on the earth and cast them into the wine press of the, the wine press of the wrath of God. And in Revelation 16, we saw again a picture of the battle of Armageddon. The unclean spirits came out of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet and gathered the kings of the earth to this battle. They gathered to make war against Christ and against his army. Again, you don't have to worry if you're on the horse at that point. The battle will be over as soon as it starts. Read verses 20 and 21 with me. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, that, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast into, alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant, or the rest, were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls are filled with their flesh. It is the beast and the false prophet here who are thrown into the lake of fire. Who are they? Now, these are the two members of the unholy trinity. The third is Satan himself. So the Antichrist and the false prophet, where are they thrown? The lake of fire. They're the first two to be cast into that eternal punishment. They'll be in torment in that lake of fire for a thousand years before anyone else is cast there. When we get to chapter 20, we'll see that Satan himself, after the thousand years, will also be thrown into the lake of fire. Let's just look ahead and get a glimpse uh, Revelation 20.10, this is after the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice where the beast and false prophet are. They were already thrown there a thousand years earlier. And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the terminology in chapter 20 verses 14 and 15 shows that those who are in hell after the great white throne judgment, will be cast into that lake of fire as well. It says in Revelation 20, 14, and 15, and death, that's the word thanatos, those who are dead, and hell, that's the word Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So after death is eternal death, and that will be the eternal lake of fire. Verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the three of the unholy trinity will be there, and everyone who has rejected the offer of free salvation through Jesus Christ will be there for eternity. Matthew 25, 41 gives us a great picture that this was not God's intent for man. He provides redemption. Man can only go to hell if he steps over the grace of God and refuses it. It says, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was described by Isaiah in Isaiah 66, 24, as a place where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark talks about this same, these same words in the same way. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed 
than to have having two hands go into hell. And that's the word Gehenna. Remember the Valley of Hinnom outside the city of Jerusalem, which was the garbage dump, always kept continually burning with fire. That was the, the picture that Jesus used to show what hell was going to be like. Into a fire that shall never be quenched, verse 44 of Mark 9, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt into life than, than having two feet to be cast into hell, again Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, for it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you can pluck your eye out and you'll never lust again. That's, that's a matter of the heart. But he's, he's saying how serious it is to enter into hell. And he says it's better if you could do that and save yourself. Jesus said in Matthew thirteen forty two, And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Many descriptions of eternal punishment are in scripture. The Old Testament Sheol is mentioned. The word Sheol is, is hell or the grave or the abode of dead spirits. The New Testament uses the words Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. These are all temporary holding places. The final torment is the lake of fire. Then after the beast and the false prophet are cast into that lake of fire, the sword spoken of in verse 15 slays all the enemies. The remnant, the rest of the armies were slain with that sword. The word of God's mouth. The vultures who had been called do what they were invited to do. They clean up the battlefield. We're confronted once again with the devastating consequences that the Bible lays out for those who reject Christ. And I would again like us to close this passage with an invitation for any who have rejected Christ as their Savior up to this point. Reject him no longer. Come to him in faith. Accept his free gift of salvation. If you don't, the one that you stand before you, you who stands before you today as Savior will stand before you then as your judge. Accept his grace. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that if there's any who are hearing this message who have still not responded to the call of salvation, that they would come to you right now. That they would pray with a sincere heart, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I know that my sins will deserve an eternal punishment in hell. But I also know that you sent your son to die on Calvary to take my place. And in faith, I accept you today as my personal Savior. Come and change my life. Be the Lord of lords and the King of kings in my heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.